This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. And I'm an assistant professor of Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my friends, Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Heidi is the executive editor and vice president of National Catholic Reporter, a publication that connects Catholics to church, faith, and the common good with independent news, analysis, and spiritual reflection. Father Dan is the director of the Center for Spirituality and professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Father Dan and Heidi, welcome to you both. Heidi, how have you been and what's been going on with you? Oh, great to see you guys again. Yeah, I'm just back from a conference that I was attending, and luckily it was here in Chicago, so I didn't have to travel far. Pleased to be able to stay downtown in a hotel and and immerse myself in this conference. You may have heard about it. It was a private by invite only conference for a number of bishops, as well as some theologians and others who gathered to talk about how the U.S. church can better support Pope Francis. The title of the conference was Pope Francis, Vatican II, and the Way Forward. I myself was on a panel that talked about conservative media and money that's kind of behind some of the anti-Pope Francis efforts here in this country. And you know, I've written about that before, but it was wonderful to get together with members of the hierarchy, with some theologians, some other journalists, and just really talk about ways that we think that the U.S. church can, you know, do a better job, especially in terms of supporting Pope Francis and his agenda, which I know we're going to be talking about that a little bit later. How about you, Dan? You are also attending many things and traveling again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is uh, feeling very much like almost pre-pandemic, knock on wood. So since the last episode, I was at Stonehill College in Easton, Massachusetts to give a lecture and went right from there in Boston to Anaheim for the LA Religious Ed Congress. And it was much smaller than usual. I think people by now have, have heard about that or seen that. As would be predicted, it's still a hybrid form. So there was an online workshop option with a lineup as well as a slightly reduced in-person experience. But a number of exhibitors that are there were there. Uh, A number of regular speakers were there. The liturgies were happening as usual. And I have to say, I saw and interacted with and spoke to a lot of Francis Effect fans who love the podcast. A shout out to you all especially those of you who were at my workshop on Friday afternoon. It was really great to spend some time with you and to chat with you throughout the weekend. So I did assure folks that if we had the opportunity, Francis Effect Live would be back uh, next year. God willing, everything works out in that way. So we hope to make that uh, a possibility. I'm actually joining our recording, our virtual recording studio from Boston at the moment. I'm back in Boston, this time in the city proper. I'm giving a lecture tonight at MIT, and uh, or I guess last night for our listeners, and then heading from here out west to Gonzaga University for a conference on sexual abuse in the church hosted by Gonzaga and the Jesuits there and at Fordham University and elsewhere. So it's going to be uh, a very important and significant event. And I know that there are a couple public lectures uh, that are available for folks uh, to, to attend if you're in the area. 
and they may be live streamed. I can't recall. I apologize if they aren't. And the rest is like Heidi's conference, you know, an invite only conference of theologians in particular. So a lot of traveling, as you said, Heidi, um, I'm happy to be doing it. It feels a little bit more normal, which means a little bit more hectic. Talking with one of my brother friars here in Boston, and I, he was asking me how it's been. And I said, basically like it was before 2020, just now everyone's wearing a mask on trains and planes and, and buses. So I guess we can live with that. I can live with that as long as those numbers keep decreasing and people are being smart and healthy. David, how are you? I'm continuing to sit still. The last two weeks have been particularly fraught for me with regard to my illness. The shingles has held on and on, and I'm thankfully finally turning the corner from it yet again, although I'm not going to count any any chickens, because the last time I was optimistic about it going away, it came back with a vengeance. So I'm still trying to rest and take things slow, and I'm looking forward to when I can start the clock running. I have to wait eight weeks from a certain end point with the illness before I can get the vaccine, and I'm eager to have that clock start. Other than that, I'm continuing to do a lot of work on shows beyond The Francis Effect. If you're looking for other podcasts to listen to, let me recommend The Four, which is a, a wonderful podcast with Lisa Sharon Harper, Michael Ray Matthews, Jackie Lewis, and Otis Moss the Third. And we've dropped many episodes now. And it's just amazing conversations about black life, love, and joy from a a faith perspective. I'm also working on a podcast with a series of Paulist deacons I'm excited about, and that has not yet been released, but we're in the kind of final stages of getting that going. And I'm continuing to work with Things Not Seen and just really enjoying those conversations. Just an especially good group of authors this time around, including just recently, Father Daniel P. Haran. And so glad of those kinds of conversations as well. Heidi, I wanted to circle back to the events that happened this weekend. And since I know that NCR has done a little bit of reporting on it, and there are some aspects of it that that can't be talked about, but I just wanted to ask you, coming out of that, did you feel optimistic or pessimistic about what was discussed (laughs) and how the discussions went? Good question. Yeah, yeah. So the conference was under the, what's called the Chatham House rule, which means, you know, so that people could be free to to talk freely. You can't, we were not covering it in a way that we would attribute quotes to people unless they wanted to talk about it themselves afterwards. So I left very optimistic. Certainly the challenges are real. And obviously when we were talking about the challenges of the money and the media behind the anti-Francis sentiment here in the United States, that's not very optimistic. But the fact that the meeting happened, the idea that this is something we they might do again, it was somewhat similar to the event that happened, gosh, I don't know how many years ago this was. I wasn't invited to it, but the one about Amoris Letizia that was at uh, Boston College a couple of years ago. I think it's always good when you have bishops sitting down and talking to everyday Catholics or the, and theologians. So this chance for those groups of people to share meals together, to get to know one another better, and to share life's experiences. So that, to me, was very positive. So I'm feeling optimistic. Dan, were you at that Boston event a couple of years ago? I wasn't, but I, I knew a lot of folks who were, and I know that was really one of the, the brainchild of uh, Father James Keenan, who's also a contributor to NCR now um, and, and a longtime professor of moral theology at BC. So like you said, my, my sense from participants who, who were involved that, that I know personally, that was a very rich and important experience. So I'm glad to hear these events take place. Yeah. So, and David, I'm sorry to hear that you're still getting hit with pain and suffering from your illness. This has really been a learning experience for me and for all of our listeners to know that this is not a disease to be uh, fooling around with. Were you able to enjoy the Oscars at all this weekend or were you were you too sick to be able to watch that? I have to admit I didn't watch it. I just watched the Twitter. <laughs> I, I, I have to admit to all my listeners, that's one piece of pop culture that I really just don't keep abreast of. I don't watch those kinds of events. I do follow them on Twitter. And certainly there was a lot to follow this particular weekend, but I, I would prefer not to comment on any of that at this particular time. <laughs> I'll comment on one thing. It's not what people might think of. And, and actually, it's been kind of disappointing, I would say, as somebody who couldn't watch because I was traveling at the time, 
and don't always watch, but I was particularly interested to see what some of the major awards, who they would go to. There were a lot of his, historical uh, firsts, and I was really happy to see uh, a movie win Best Picture that I've talked about here on the podcast and that I saw very early on when it was released by Apple and few people had seen it and talked about it. And that is Coda, which is, I found to be a very, you know, moving movie about the hearing impaired community and a family. And it's just extraordinary. And the, the father in that movie won Best Supporting Actor and the movie itself won Best Picture. And I was actually just reading an article this morning, again, continuing to unpack and analyze all the events that went down at the Oscars. And somebody mentioned in passing that really one of the, the kind of radiant spotlights, the positive moments in the whole thing was the acceptance speech of this deaf man, this wonderful deaf actor, and how it was presented by the winner last year of Best Supporting Actress, who is Korean, I believe. And she was very funny and just sincere in her introduction, and then was very moved when she saw who the winner was and switched to just a little bit of sign language she had studied in advance, just in case this person did actually win. And the article made mention of the fact that the sign language translator was even getting choked up as he was translating for, for the winner. And so I, I just watched that on YouTube today. And then I encourage folks to check it out. If you watch eight minutes of the Oscars, that's definitely worth it. I did was excited to see Coda win Best Picture because most years I haven't seen very many of the nominees. Shout out to my sister who tries to watch all of the nominees now that they're available, usually on streaming services. But I had seen Coda, and it was an amazing movie. So I'm happy to see that it won. Well, today on our program, we're going to be talking about three topics. We're going to be looking at the recent events around uh, Justice Clarence Thomas and his wife, Virginia Thomas, and what that might mean for our understanding of the January 6th rebellion and the possible prosecutions to follow. We're going to be talking about recent actions by Pope Francis about the reform of the Curia, and we're going to be talking about the confirmation hearings of Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson. Please do stay with us. This is The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Dan Haran and Heidi Schlumpf. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Last week, Virginia, or Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, was in the news. The Washington Post revealed that she had urged Donald Trump's White House chief of staff to take steps to overturn the 2020 election. She did so through a series of texts to Mark Meadows in the weeks between the election and the January 6th attack on the Capitol, a time when Trump and his allies were vowing to go to the Supreme Court to try to negate the election results. In one message in the days after the election, Ginny urged Meadows to, quote, release the Kraken and save us from the left taking America down, unquote. The phrase release the Kraken refers to unfounded conspiracy theories that Trump supporters believed would overturn the election. In other messages, she calls November 3rd, Election Day, a, quote, heist, unquote, and repeats a QAnon conspiracy theory that falsely alleges voter fraud in Arizona on secretly watermarked ballots. 
In one of his responses, Meadows wrote to Jenny Thomas, quote, this is a fight of good versus evil, unquote. Earlier in March, Ginny Thomas admitted in an interview to attending the January 6th rally at the Ellipse in Washington before some in that crowd stormed the Capitol building. She has actively opposed the House Select Committee investigating the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, co-signing a letter in December calling for House Republicans to expel representatives Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger from their conference for joining the January 6th committee. In January, Clarence Thomas was the only justice who voted against allowing the release of records from the Trump White House related to the January 6th attack. Heidi, some are now calling for Clarence Thomas to either recuse himself from future cases related to the election or January 6th attack. Others are saying he should resign from the court. What do you think? Well, I'm reading up the news this morning as we're recording on Tuesday that now two dozen House and Senate Democrats, including members of the Judiciary Committees in both chambers, are now officially asking for Thomas to recuse himself from any cases that might have to do with the election or January 6th. I think that at the baseline is what should happen. Of course, now the committee also, the House committee on January 6th, is asking to speak to Jenny Thomas. So the first thing I would point out is that this is an ethical issue, and both Jenny Thomas and Clarence Thomas are Catholics, and so I would like to think that their faith informs their ethics of how they bring their ethics to uh, the workplace. And I think we have to be very concerned when the judiciary branch is supposed to be serving as a check and balance on the other branches of government, especially, you know, when it comes to the importance of our democratic elections. And instead, we have the spouse of one of the justices being this conservative activist who clearly is moved from, you know, mainstream conservative activism into some of these very fringe conspiracy groups and using her influence there to not only influence her husband, but to pick up the phone and text people within the Trump White House. I mean, this idea that she's helping to guide the strategy of the White House about how to overturn the election is, I mean, it's just shocking. And in some ways, the fact that it doesn't shock us anymore is really scary to me. I had read the piece earlier, I think it came out in January from Jane Mayer in The New Yorker, that detailed a lot of Jenny Thomas's connections to some of these very problematic right-wing groups and their money. I think there are also some, probably a story to be told about some of the connections within the Catholic Church as well. And I think for a long time, her political activism has been seen as controversial. But now I think we really have to take a hard look at it. And of course, Clarence Thomas's career on the court has been controversial from the get-go. So, I mean, very concerning for those of us who are hopeful that the Supreme Court can continue to be this check and balance on what has otherwise become very political and very concerning. What do you guys think? Well, I also read the Jane Mayer piece in The New Yorker a few months back, and I was pretty shocked by what I saw. And I would say that You know, these days, it takes a lot to shock me. You know, what what we see going on in the world, what we've seen over the last five or six years, this is definitely shocking. And I think for two, two reasons in particular, the biggest one is the access that she had. So, you know, the kind of activism that she had regularly participated in and led in many ways around D.C. and in other parts of the country, that that itself is, you know, lots of people do that. I guess I understand that. I think on January 6th, when everything was going down, that Ginny Thomas had the text message direct line to the chief of staff of the president of the United States and, as reports have shown, to the son-in-law of the president, Jared Kushner, is just very weird at face value and, I think, again, disturbing. I mean, access is power in D.C., and this is definitely a sign of a lot of power. The second thing that has caught my attention is, at first, the initial silence, it seems, from people on the right, Republicans in particular, not exactly sure how to respond, what the messaging should be around this. I, I, I anticipate, I've seen a few statements that would fall into this category, but I would anticipate, again, another sign of hypocrisy. And what I mean by that is Republicans in particular saying, you know, oh, well, you know, are we going to go after the spouses of Supreme Court justices? You know, just because Ginny Thomas is an independent citizen, a private citizen, does X, Y, or Z, you know, can't we hold that a Supreme Court justice can make his own decisions, et cetera, et cetera. And my response to that is Democrats have never been treated that way or Democratic appointees by the Republican Party. One name comes to mind immediately, and that is Hunter Biden. 
and a whole kind of conspiracy theory and slandering enterprise that was centered on the living son of the current president of the United States. So I'm keeping an eye out for more of that. Um, but I think, Heidi, you bring up a really good point, too, about the ethical issue here. You know, I think, is it Spider-Man or Superman with great responsibility, great power comes great responsibility? Wherever That's that line... Spider-Man. Spider-Man. <laughs> Thank you, David. I knew I could trust you to get that, that superhero reference correct. I mean, I, I think there's truth in that, obviously. And, you know, when you are in such a position of power and garner by virtue of being the spouse of a Supreme Court justice, lots of privileges, lots of power, lots of financial and security comfort. I think there are certain things that are expected of you. That's just the case. And so the Jane Mayer article, I think, was illuminating for me about how a lot of boundaries have been crossed to begin with. And then this revelation this past week is just kind of mind blowing. Well, the only thing that I would add to that is, you know, I work a lot with the idea of narrative in my scholarship. And there is a lot of analysis that has been happening from the left looking at our current political situation here in America about a narrative that is not new to the Trump presidency or if it's or its aftermath. It's actually been around for about 15 years, but basically that Democrats do not have the right to win elections. That any time that a Democratic candidate would win an election, it is an aberration or a failure of the electoral system, not an actual result of the electoral system. And that may sound like a strange analysis or a strange position to certain people, but the, but this is not just a fringe idea. This has been a central idea of certain Republican strategists for the last decade and a half since, you know, since around the time of the Obama administration. And this idea of kind of permanent Republican rule is not just at the top, but it goes down into things like gerrymandering in, in electoral districts and all those sorts of things. Now, it, it is all right, and people are allowed to have narratives and theories about how they think the country should be. I'm not opposing that at all. But there's a unique aspect to Supreme Court justices because their narratives have the power to become reality in a way that most of us don't have access to. And so the real question for me is it's clear from the reporting that Jenny Thomas holds this narrative. The question is, does she influence or does Justice Clarence Thomas also hold this narrative? And if so, is he in a position to apply this anti-democratic narrative given his position? These are the things that I'm interested in exploring more and hearing more about because, again, you know, we're in a unique position with the Supreme Court that their narratives shape our reality and limit our reality, and that's worth talking about. What do you two make about Justice Thomas's singular vote against the release of the Trump information in the January 6th investigation? I mean, that's striking even before the, the revelation of Ginny Thomas's texting and involvement on the January 6th events. Do you have thoughts about that? Well, of course, I can't know for sure. But if what, what it raises the question of is, did he know? that there would be things that would be revealed about his wife that would not be flattering. And so did that enter into his decision-making? Now, only he knows for sure, but it, certainly the appearance is that there's a conflict of interest there. I mean, the idea that with Supreme Court justices serving life terms and with the, again, with the amount of power of being on that, that highest court, the fact that our Supreme Court does not have explicit ethical guidelines and rules is really problematic. And we're seeing that now because they're not automatically happening by the people involved. My friend Matt Sitman of Commonweal tweeted over the weekend about how, you know, as a married couple, they're kind of a pair. And he used to work for the Heritage Foundation and remembers Justice Thomas coming in with his wife. You know, as a married person, I can tell you that my husband and I are not one in the same, you know, so I have some thoughts that he doesn't have, and I may not agree with everything he says. But it is true that because of the nature of our relationship, I can't be objective about uh, topics on which maybe we uh, disagree or things that he might be involved in if it were, if I were in that position of power to be on the Supreme Court. So I think we have to think about that. It, fair or not fair, spouses of people who have a lot of power have to sometimes curtail their public personas because of this very concern. 
Well, and I think it's worth noting, too, that it's not lost on me that this is a juridical concern and that in the United States, our law makes clear that spouses cannot be compelled to testify against one another. So the legal system itself recognizes a sort of intimacy, a sort of right to pri privileged conversation and knowledge by virtue of their proximity, right? So there obviously are some things that cannot be disclosed by virtue of somebody's job. I think of people who work for the State Department or... You know, even in the Catholic Church, there it's an exception in the Western Catholic Church, in the Roman Church, but there are married priests and the seal of confession stands there. You can't tell your spouse what's going on in the confessional, right? And again, that's not the same as a Supreme Court justice and their spouse. My point is simply to say that, you know, it's stipulated that there's some things that spouses don't tell each other that are because they're confidential. However, the system itself recognizes the unique relationship that spouses have. And I think the fact that there isn't this kind of immediate willingness to recuse oneself, you know, based just simply on the appearance of impropriety or, or compromise is really disturbing. Now, in fairness, I think it's also worth noting that Justice Thomas was in, in the hospital for the last week with apparently a severe flu. So maybe that is part of the reason why uh, this hasn't been announced yet. But Given his kind of intransigence on the bench and given Ginny Thomas's activist attitudes, I don't expect there to be a recusal anytime soon. I just I'm curious for our Catholic listeners and speaking as three Catholics here in this conversation, you know, talking about other Catholics, there is this notion somehow from others that we all kind of operate as a united front, right, that we're that we all kind of go in lockstep. That's not the case, but I wonder what sorts of things should Catholics be hoping for or praying for in this particular moment with the Thomases, that they would have, that they would use their power justly or that they would have a change of heart, or I'm not even sure what I'm asking here, but it, it seems like this is a question that speaks to the heart of the Catholic Church as a quasi-political entity. Like when we get power, and when we get the kind of power that Clarence Thomas has, how should a Catholic justifiably exercise that power? Well, that's a great question. And of course, our president is also a Catholic. So um, one that many people are thinking about and considering and have opinions about, about. I think also it's worth noting that on the U.S. Supreme Court, we have a very high overrepresentation of Catholics on the court, given the percentage of Catholics in the country. So, so we have our faith spotlighted in these individuals who have a lot of political power right now. And you're right, David, they won't always agree with every Catholic out there. So the president in some of his positions on certain political issues doesn't always agree with what church teaching or some of the hierarchy teach about something. And many of the justices on the Supreme Court don't always rule in ways that would represent all U.S. Catholics either. So I guess what we would ask is what every Catholic is asked to do in their in their work life or in their in the whatever, you know, profession that they've chosen to do, which is to behave ethically. And this just seems to me to be such a blatant ethical lapse that it's worth raising, you know, about any Supreme Court's court justice, no matter what his or her religious background might be. But I don't know. Dan, you have opinion on that? I just want to add one additional addendum that our legislative branch has been disproportionately representative of Catholics, too. The last three speakers of the House were Catholic, including John Boehner, Paul Ryan, and Nancy Pelosi, the current Speaker of the House. So, you know, your point is all the more true there, Heidi. I, I would say, too, that, you know, it's interesting when we look at Supreme Court decisions that you have Catholics that are appointed by both presidents of both sides of the aisle. And there's a real disparity on how certain justices are voting. We can think about presumed intentions or leanings around forthcoming abortion decisions. You can think about, you know, the reinstatement, particularly in the last presidential administration and in the last attorney general's direction of the reinstatement of capital punishment and the execution of those on death row. And we see a real disparity, too, among Catholics on the bench around sex and gender rights. So, you know, David, I think your point is, is well put, that there is no sort of singular uh, monolithic way of thinking about Catholicism or how Catholics in particular in the professional life exercise their faith or put it into action if they consider that a priority at all. With regard to what to pray for, or what to hope for, I mean, I, I have two thoughts, really. One is that Ginny Thomas is not an unintelligent person. And I think that's 
also what's a little bit startling is that some of these things, including these text messages to the president's chief of staff, this is not a, you know, these are high power, very smart people, whether you agree with them or not. And using this sort of conspiracy theory language with such fervor is just really jarring to me. I'd like to think that well-educated, intelligent people can see through this sort of nonsense. And I think that's partly what makes this so dangerous, the QAnon conspiracies and the January 6th, the, the, the stuff that has led to the January 6th insurrection, you know, the big lie, as it's oftentimes called, that, that Trump actually won the election, quote unquote. You know, these things that are just verifiably false that people are holding on to with such, I don't know, which which such strength, it just makes no sense to me. So I guess my hope is that, you know, a virtue of prudence, a virtue of wisdom, you know, all these gifts of the Holy Spirit that we talk about may be something that, you know, both Justice Thomas and Ginny Thomas will embrace. I, I do believe that God extends that grace to everybody. But as St. Augustine famously said, you know, grace operates cooperatively. We we can kind of choose to reject it, as it were. That's our free will. So my hope is that there is this embrace of, as Augustine would say in Latin, the gratia cooperans. Well, I think that's a good place for us to leave our discussion for now. As this story develops, we may come back to it. But for right now, let's take a break. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf, and I'm here today with David Dalt and Dan Horan. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Earlier this month, Pope Francis released a long-awaited apostolic constitution concerning the nature and structure of the Church's central government, which opened the doors for laywomen and men to hold powerful leadership positions in many of the Vatican's dicasteries. Previously, only ordained men, and usually cardinals, could hold the top positions within the Vatican. This new constitution, titled Preach the Gospel, explains that the power of governance in the Church does not come from sacramental orders, but from the baptismal vocation all the faithful receive to be evangelizers. Evangelization is at the heart of this reform, which has been a nine-year-long process, beginning shortly after Pope Francis was elected Bishop of Rome and began meeting with a council of cardinal advisors who prioritized the need to reform the Curia. As with many church documents over the centuries, clues to the nature of the reform come through in the Constitution's title itself. This text replaces John Paul II's Pastor Bonus which means good pastor, which signals that canonical leadership is the domain of the clergy. Pope Francis's text is titled Predicate Evangelium, or Preach the Gospel, which alludes to a key theme in the Holy Father's ministry over these last nine years, noting that, quote, missionary discipleship, end quote, and evangelization is every baptized person's responsibility. This is not the first time that Pope Francis has reformed parts of the Church's governing offices. He established new offices, such as the Secretariat for the Economy, and restructured previous ones, such such as the merging of four pontifical councils to form the singular Dicastery for Promoting Integral Human Development. But there's a real sense that this could be a game-changer moving forward. Dan, what do you think about this new apostolic constitution? Is it as exciting as some people think? Are you hopeful about lasting change? Regular listeners and and my former students will know that one of my favorite German words is the word Jein, which is a a combination of yes and no. I I think it is potentially as exciting as it seems. 
I think it's worth adding just a couple additional background elements. You know, there, there are some exceptions that the Constitution lay out for when a cleric in particular, you know, a cardinal or ideally a cardinal would still be the uh, prefect or the head of a dicastery. And uh, there are three in specific that, that are listed in this group. So two are the canonical tribunals of the church. That is the Roman Rhoda and the Apostolic Signatura. And I'll just bracket that for a minute because I have thoughts about why, again, you know, when you can have lay judicial vicars for dioceses, lay canon lawyers, why you couldn't have a lay person in the highest sort of, it's like the Supreme Courts of the church, as it were. That's one reason. And the third is the Council for Economy. And, and the logic behind this in the document is that those three particular offices are those that coordinate with the Carmelengo at the conclave. So when a, a pope dies or retires and there's the process of electing a new bishop of Rome, these three offices are the primary ones that keep things running. So um, just going back to the canonical question for a moment, you know, something that, again, I, I understand that there may be some issues around privilege in this kind of stuff in the election of a pope and the significance of that exceptional circumstance. But it does raise questions, again, about how is power understood, authority understood, you know, judicial authority exercised in the church and, and who has access to that. It's interesting that Pope Francis has been kind of piecemealing this reform over the last nine years. So this isn't, and, and, so when you ask Heidi, is this as exciting as some people think? Is this a game changer? Yes and no, because some of this has already been implemented along the way. We've seen over recent years an increased appointment, for instance, of lay women and men and women religious in particular to these dicasteries and to staffs of Vatican offices. Right now, there's only one office of this sort at this level that is staffed by a lay person, and that is the a dicastery for communications um, staffed by an Italian or is, is the prefect is an Italian lay person. And uh, so it'll be interesting to see how this changes uh, over time, if, if it does. I guess the one other thing I would say is that this has certain ripple effects potentially for other aspects of church life because, for instance, in, in orders or congregations, religious congregations that are known as mixed communities that have both ordained and non-ordained members, like the Franciscan order, for instance, there is uh, a prohibition of non-ordained religious having the ordinary office, so being a provincial or being the kind of general minister or general superior of that community or congregation, in part because of an understanding of how canon law operates, pastoral authority and power that's located or associated with the holy orders. And so the kind of oversimplistic way of thinking about this is, as things are understood and structured now, a layperson could not be the religious superior at that ordinary sense. You can on the local level. That happens all the time. But at the, the provincial or higher level of those who are ordained. Those of us in the Franciscan family, I'll just say to be clear, we have been fighting this for many decades. All three of the first orders of the Franciscan family, the OFMs, OFM conventuals, and OFM Capuchins, have petitioned the Holy See to have this changed. So I want to get that out there too, that, that it doesn't mean we're okay with it. This is an imposition that comes from the top, and I wonder if this will have some consequences down the road. So my question as a layperson, and so far, Predicate Evangelium, the Preach the Gospel Constitution, has only been promulgated in Italian, so I haven't had a chance to look at the English text yet. But there's oftentimes a rhetoric that kind of floats around in these questions, and I'm not sure how doctrinal it is, but the notion of the kind of seal of the Holy Spirit or the operation of the Holy Spirit among the leadership of the Church, the kind of magisterial charism in that sense. And I'm wondering how this changes those dynamics, because some people will say, well, the Holy Spirit is telling the bishops what to do, and the bishops are telling you know, the others what to do, and that's the leadership of the Church, and it's our job as lay people simply to follow them because they've got that special charism of the Holy Spirit. This seems to imply that the Holy Spirit is more unilaterally available, and I'd love to hear more about that. I think that's exactly right, David, and let me give you a couple dates here to help contextualize this. You know, I'm thinking of the, the great work of, you know, Professor Derek Brown, for instance, in, in American legal scholarship about interest convergence, that things, you know, oftentimes don't change randomly or just because people come to an awareness of things, there are other factors that play a role. So basically, since the late 16th century, it has been the practice that the leadership of these offices in the Vatican, as the offices have changed and been renamed and moved over the centuries, 
has been associated with the College of Cardinals. And what, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to correlate what's going on in the late 16th century, in 1588 in particular onward, is after the, the Council of Trent. So there is this you know, immediate kind of shockwave after the Reformation, kind of battening down the hatches. There's a crisis moment. And so, you know, you kind of, you centralize the government, right? You have this kind of strict control and it's deeply clerical and it goes to the highest levels, right? It's the College of Cardinals. You get fast forward to the mid 20th century and that's in place basically for four centuries. You get to Vatican II and exactly what you're saying, David, is restored. It's not new. It's, this is where like you hear trads talking about the novus ordo is that this is the new order, the new liturgy. It is a restored liturgy that goes back, and it's a restored theology that is a ressourcement going back to the early church, teaching back to the first centuries of Christianity. And one of the things in Lumen Gentium, the document on the church itself, is this recognition that everybody shares in divine holiness. Being ordained, being a religious, being the Pope doesn't make you any more Catholic or Christian than the most newly baptized baby, that we share a universal call to holiness, and that the fuller understanding of the census fidelium and the census fide, the sense of faith that all people have by virtue of baptism, is this reception or openness to the Holy Spirit's action in the world. So that exactly what you just named, you know, comes to the magisterial surface, as it were, in the highest teaching of the church in these dogmatic constitutions of Vatican II. Two years after the council closes, Paul VI issues a constitution in 1967 where there's some reform of the Curia yet again, basically saying that no longer are we just going to let cardinals be the ones at the top, but other bishops can be too. So there's a little bit of a loosening there. The idea, I think, is to get more global representation, right? So a bishop from Argentina, not some sort of bureaucrat who's become a cardinal by virtue of working his way up the ladder in Rome. 1988, Pope uh, John Paul II issues another constitution that addresses some restructuring, not so much in the bishops and cardinals at the head sort of thing, that doesn't change, but there are some financial scandals. There are some, again, that first round as NCR so famously reported in the 1980s and 1990s, that kind of first public reckoning of clergy abuse came to the surface. So there's these ripple effects. JP2 issues another constitution, but it's not really until 2022 with this constitution that we get the fullness of the restoration of the theology of holiness, of the universal call to holiness, of the Holy Spirit, as you're saying, and the dignity and virtue that, that is, should be you know, presumed of all people, lay people included. Well, I, I guess I'm astounded that we even have to say, does the Holy Spirit speak to everybody in the church? And that that is, and that that is a reclaiming of, of the original intent of the church. I also see this as very positive. David, it's interesting that you mentioned the way it was promulgated in Italian on a Saturday morning when we had uh, no idea that it was coming after waiting for nine years. This is something that Pope Francis was charged with doing when he was elected Pope. Right? That this was about some reform needed at the level of the Vatican bureaucracy. And so I'm grateful that he's doing it. And this opening to lay people, including the possibility of women, to have some positions in the Vatican is potentially very exciting. I don't know if when you were mentioning, Dan, I, I w lost a little bit, of the one of the dicasteries that couldn't be headed by a layperson, did you include evangelization? Because the Pope himself is going to be heading up that dicastery, which I think is interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't mention that, but that isn't necessarily ind indefinite, right? That's for the time yeah. being. So, you know, theoretically, you know, even now, Pope Francis could pass that on to a layperson or to some other bishop. But yeah, I mean, he's making it very clear. Evangelization is what is at the heart. And I think that's so key. I guess I would just also raise that there are a couple things in the Constitution that I know have raised some eyebrows by a couple, by by groups. So first, there is this issue of the way that reorganization is going with the Pope's Sex Abuse Com Commission, so this Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Minors, which previously had been this independent group that reported to the Pope, now is being made part of the official bureaucracy, right? So it's going to be under the doctrinal office, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. So, I mean, on the one hand, this shows this is something that's not going away. It's going to be a part of the Vatican office. On the other hand, some victims groups are raising concerns about whether there will be a loss of independence there and an ability for that commission to uh, 
speak frankly about what they want to, you know, want, what they want to say. And then the other small thing was people who have prefer the former versions of the mass. We can't say old, right? Because the Norvis Ardo is the old one, as, as uh, Dan just pointed out. But the new constitution calls for the two offices that deal with the sacraments and worship to promote the liturgy according to renewal under Vatican II. So this, I think, is seen by some who prefer the Latin Mass as another example, yet another time that Pope Francis is saying, no, we're moving forward with the Vatican II version of you know, a reclaiming of the original Mass. So. I don't have much to say about people who are upset about the, the Tridentine Mass uh, in, increasingly being restricted, because I think, again, scholars of, of liturgy know well the problems with that. So I'll leave that for another time. But I just want to pick up on on your point about the understandable concern about the lack of independence with the abuse investigation arm of of the church. And this is where it gets really complicated because on the one hand, I totally agree. And I think that victim survivors and advocacy groups are are right to to raise concern about independence. On the other hand, the other way to look at this is to understand the sort of inside baseball of church leadership and power. The CDF is basically, you know, the first among equals. It is a very powerful office. And part of what this other commentators and, and experts have pointed out, that this is actually a, a sign of confidence that Pope Francis wants to assure that there is the in enforcement behind the principle itself. So if you have, for instance, in the church, a completely independent investigatory arm, you know, it's almost like what in the U.S. Congress, if, you know, the U.S. Congress in its investigation of January 6th can suggest all kinds of inquiries and, and charges, but it requires actually the attorney general and the Justice Department to put those into practice. So I think in this way, I'm torn. I'm, I'm on many thoughts about this because I think victim survivors and, and advocacy groups are right to raise concern. But I also think there's a way to look at this to say that Pope Francis is doing what his two immediate predecessors did not do which is to put a lot of power and force behind making sure that changes are made. I want to raise just one other question, because occasionally I am in communication with listeners to the show, and you know, I sometimes will say things like, you follow your local bishop, you, this is the way that you kind of navigate in the church, but some have communicated to me that they're not necessarily in the kind of position that many of us are here in the Chicago area, where there's a bishop or there are leaders in the church who are open to these kinds of changes. And so I'm wondering if there are any words of wisdom or hope for those that may be in a diocese or in a parish where their particular leadership does not want to see these kinds of reforms and changes implemented, and in fact are resisting the possibility of lay participation in the church. Well, again, I think it can be encouraging. And as Dan said, it could set a model for the possibility of women's lay leadership at other levels. We already have women who are chancellors and have other high-ranking positions in dioceses and, and archdioceses. Um, and certainly at the parish level, there have been examples throughout history of women having, you know, pastoral associate or what's the title they use? They're varying titles. Oh, parochial vicar or something like yeah, that. Yeah, when there's someone who's really heading up a parish as a lay person because they don't have a resident priest. But I just do think that the representation of it, I mean, if and when the first woman is appointed to head a, a Vatican dicastery, will really send a message around the world. Well, I'm very interested in these sorts of questions about the organization of the church, and I know that I speak for Heidi and Father Dan both when I say we will definitely be watching this, especially as that English version of the Constitution becomes available, and we may well be coming back to this again. But for right now, we're going to take a break. Uh, please stay with us. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and David Dahl. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Earlier in March, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson sat for four days with the Senate Judiciary Committee. This was a series of hearings as part of her consideration as President Joe Biden's nominee for Supreme Court Justice. 
Judge Jackson is the first African-American woman to be nominated for a seat on the Supreme Court. She served previously as a public defender, as vice chair of the U.S. Sentencing Commission, and as a judge in the District Court of Columbia, as well as the U.S. Court of Appeals. However, her qualifications were often not the subject of questions proposed by the committee. The proceedings were contentious, and Judge Jackson was repeatedly questioned by Republican senators about matters such as critical race theory and other culture war issues. David, like many of us, you watch the hearings with Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. What are some key takeaways for you? Well, part of it is the general thing that we can say about American legislatures generally right now, and that is we have a devolution from politics into political theater. And the whole kind of notion that we would be getting robust discussion of her qualifications seemed to fly out the window with at least half of the questions that got asked. Now, obviously, the those that are on the Democratic side of the committee also had a vested interest in asking questions that were propping up those qualifications and weren't always attuned towards really getting at the meat, the heart of the matter. But when I watched the Republicans with some exceptions, there were some exceptions, but when I watched the majority of the Republicans, there was a sense in which Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson was being put in the position of, because of the color of her skin, the dark color of her skin, she was being asked to answer for any number of other African Americans, maybe with whom she has no contact whatsoever. She was asked to respond to children's books. She was asked to respond to various types of political theories. She was asked to opine on biological questions, all of which are rightfully outside the ken of her expertise. Nevertheless, because of all the things that she represents in that theater space, she was called upon to answer for them. And I just want to point this out as well. She was called upon to answer them with equanimity and calmness and to show no emotional reaction when she was being attacked, unlike some other recent candidates for justice that we have seen in the past few years. So those are my initial thoughts, but I'd be very interested in what the two of you think. All I know is that people of color that I know or who I follow on social media were rightly traumatized by watching this days-long grilling of a very, I mean, arguable, no one can argue with her qualifications. Her resume is amazing. And I love that she has the added experience of having worked as a public defender which brings a different perspective to this court instead of always having, not having that perspective of having to have represented or be involved in the cases of people who couldn't even afford their own attorneys. But instead to have take that experience and to, to kind of turn it on its head and run with this crazy line about sex offenders that some Republicans grilled her on. And as you said, David, the, the asking her of questions that just because she's African-American, that she was supposed to comment on anything that would touch on, on anything that had to do with Black life in America was insulting and really difficult to watch. So I listened to parts of it, but I, too, found it very disturbing to watch. I think your description of political theater is exactly right, David. And the greatest example of this for me comes in uh, the line of questioning from Marsha Blackburn and followed up by Senator Ted Cruz, these two senators who asked Judge Jackson to define what a woman is and clearly playing to their base and their transphobic, homophobic fears. I thought, you know, Judge Jackson did a great job saying that she's not a biologist, you know, you know, kind of trying to point out the absurdity of this question, but she was based on these sort of gotcha, alt-right base directed kind of questions. You're damned if you do and damned if you don't. I thought it was very interesting. I watched John Oliver's last week tonight from Sunday night. And, you know, one of the things that he noted and his researchers found was that Shortly after Ted Cruz uh, had his, you know, 15 minutes of uh, grilling or whatever it is, I don't even think it's exactly 15 minutes, he was seen in a photograph immediately checking his Twitter mentions. So, you know, this has nothing to do with examining the qualifications of uh, a potential Supreme Court justice. As Heidi said, they're impeccable. There's nothing you can really go after there. So they're going after, you know, political headlines and gotcha sort of questions to paint somebody as negatively to their political base as possible. And it's just disgusting. It's so abhorrent. 
One of the worst questions, too, in addition to the define a woman question was, I think, Lindsey Graham, who said, on a scale of one to 10, how would you rate your faithfulness to your religion? I just, I mean, really, it, it just, you know, and what is she supposed to say to that? I just thought, I mean, she's clearly, you know, a religious person who has not made her religion front and center to her you know, work as a judge and throughout her legal career. But it, it's just embarrassing. It's also, again, in the context of judicial, you know, like best practices, you can't ask uh, a candidate for a job at McDonald's a question about their religious background. It's illegal. So, I mean, you, it, it is. It's so absurd. I, I want to take this direction that we're going in the conversation and circle it back to something that you mentioned earlier, Heidi, and that is the matter of trauma. Because you mentioned that this was traumatizing to African-Americans who watched it and that they knew very well kind of what was going on in this sort of political theater. I want to speak to that in terms of for her to be sitting in that seat for these hearings for the nomination, Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson is a representative of and a kind of gesture towards an acknowledgement of the trauma of exclusion, the trauma of dislocation, the intersectional trauma of not only being an African-American in America, but being a woman in America, being a person of high qualifications who's being passed over you know, by underqualified men in America. There's lots of aspects where she is being a representative of that moment. And President Joe Biden saying, I'm going to nominate an African-American woman as a Supreme Court justice is a way of trying to address some of that inequality, that trauma. What's interesting to me is that when the conservatives, the Republicans, got into a position to speak to that, they chose instead to try and spin a different narrative of trauma. And so you use the example of Lindsey Graham. He was not actually talking to or about Judge Jackson. He was instead trying to relitigate what was going on with earlier Supreme Court nominees. Let's make that the narrative. And we were traumatized by this. Those in power were, were trying to build a narrative of traumatization, I think because people who look at Judge Jackson sitting in that chair and who really understand the history of this country will understand that she is an attempt to make a kind of reparation for a kind of exclusion. And for certain people who have been historically in power, that is even naming that is anathema, and so they want to spin a different story. Now, I've just gone way highfalutin in narrative on this, but that those are my thoughts on that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and I the look on her face when it became clear that's what Graham was trying to get, you know, circle back to the previous grilling of their candidate, and and she just was like flabbergasted. What am I supposed to say about that? You know, the meme that sort of made the rounds after the first day. I just pulled it up here. Showed a, a picture of her. For overqualified women who have to remain calm, friendly, knowledgeable, and professional in front of underqualified men, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. I had shared <laughs> I that, that on a personal social media page, and it got a lot of activity because I didn't make it up, but I was just sharing it because I think that is something that certainly many women of color can relate to, and certainly probably men of color and women not of color can relate to. So I just think the whole the whole thing, as you said, David, it's it puts on display some of the deeper issues around race and gender that are going on in our country today. And while it saddens me, I'm hoping that her confirmation, when it happens, will be a step in the right direction towards finally moving a little bit forward on those issues. I think, you know, zooming back out for a moment, not just about, you know, the, the terrible political theater and the, the disrespect that was showed to this eminent judge by uh, Republican senators, to think about the situation we're in right now, you know, as you said, Heidi, hopefully she's confirmed. But if she's confirmed, it's pretty clear right now that it's going to be along party lines with the vice president of the United States making, you know, the tie-breaking vote. and. We saw a similar sort of, it's not a power play per se, but it, it's just a different landscape now where you have to win. I, I don't know. I don't know what exactly what I'm trying to say. My frustration is with this complete partisanism that has seemed to surface. You know, when Judge Jackson was confirmed at her late last federal uh, judicial appointment, 
she garnered three Republican votes, including that of Lindsey Graham, who was one of the people being incredibly disrespectful in the hearings last week. It's clear he signaled he's not going to vote for her this time. And I mean, what a shame. I mean, I think we need to talk a bit more about this, about these are folks who are, I, I, they're clearly not voting their consciences. They're voting a party line. And I don't know if you two have thoughts about this either. I, I, I don't have a solution. I'm just so disgusted by where things are. And we see this with, with cabinet appointments. We see this with judges. We see this with everything, including legislation. And it's, I don't know how we get out of this. I do have thoughts about it. And I want to circle back to something I said in an earlier segment of this conservative narrative that Democratic candidates are not allowed to win. And when they do win, it is an aberration. I just want to remind listeners that we have, in recent memory, a Supreme Court justice nominee who was not even allowed to be considered because those that were in power at the time were of the opinion that a Democratic president should not be able to even offer nominations to the Supreme Court. And so I I just want to point out to everybody that this is a lockstep kind of ideological framework that is being put forward here, that, that there should be no possibility of dissonance in terms of the ideological positions of our country. We should be conservative, and the only people who are allowed to make laws or interpret laws should be conservative, and anyone else is not only suspect, but needs to be thrust out of consideration entirely. I I think that is a vicious kind of position to hold. I think it's an anti-democratic position to hold, both big D and little d, but it is the situation that we are in, and it needs to be named, and it needs to be called out whenever it happens, and it needs to be fought against. Yeah, I I hear what you're saying. And I also, to be honest, we witnessed then a retrenchment on the side of the Democrats as well to realize that they have to play the same game. Be, you know, it's hard to believe that it wasn't that long ago that most Supreme Court nominees were were uh, approved by a, a bipartisan huge majority. And now we're down to this divisiveness. It's a problem in our country, our world, and even in our church, as we talked about at that conference I mentioned at the top of the show. And it's truly threatening everyone. So this isn't just something that is happening to to this particular Supreme Court nominee. It's pervasive in all of our cultures. So yeah, something we'll, we keep returning to again and again, sadly. But I think that our faith has something to say about this. So we need to, to listen to it. Well, and I just want to return again. Oftentimes, those who sit in the pews in churches that are run by more kind of traditionalist priests or who are sitting under more traditionalist bishops, they may hear a spin on this story that a win for Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson to a seat on the Supreme Court bench would be a loss for the side of right, the side of good. And so in case any of those folks are listening, I wonder what kind of words of hope we might have for them about this process, about this candidate, about the way in which, you know, our politics are going. I'd love to leave our show with an optimistic note if we can. Well, I mean, in the short term, I think it's very likely she will be confirmed. And so I think that's good news. It's good news for the reasons that you both mentioned. This is long overdue to have uh, a black woman on the Supreme Court. I mean, this is an incredibly long overdue. And Judge Jackson is very deserving of this. I, I was moved by Senator Cory Booker's uh, remarks to Judge Jackson along those lines and talking about the historical significance and also her how she deserves this position, that, that this is not something... You know, and I guess that's part of what brings me such great frustration and shame for our legislative branch right now, which is it's going to appear that she scrapes by the skin of her teeth. But the truth is she's eminently qualified, equally or greater, more greatly qualified than many of the sitting Supreme Court justices and certainly more than many justices over the previous 200 plus years. So that's hopeful to me. I, I, I also think that, David, to your point, you know, folks need to stop listening to the narrative spin. And I know I, I this goes back, I suppose, Heidi, to the conference you were just a part of and a lot of the conversation right now among media professionals about how do we get back to a sense of some kind of shared understanding of fact? <laughs> what does facticity look like in, in the current time? And so I, I think that's my suggestion. And I guess one way to do it is you can watch some of the hearings yourself. You know, don't listen to what somebody is spinning or what Fox News says or what you're you know, Fox News watching friend, neighbor, or pastor says, go see for yourself. 
Yeah. And I would just say that, yeah, I definitely to go watch that exchange with Cory Booker because that was, gave me chills, made, brought tears to my eyes. On the other hand, I know there are probably some Catholics for whom the abortion issue is very important and think the best way to approach the abortion issue is by making it illegal at the national level. And so they are maybe concerned about a appointment to the Supreme Court who may not vote in that direction. They have enough votes without her to overturn Roe versus Wade. But I would say that just a remembering that the life issue is broader than just that one issue and that the idea of bringing somebody in who has this background that she has, especially as a public defender, we're often surprised by when people uh, get on the Supreme Court where their decisions go. So I'm actually very hopeful and think that the different experiences that she would bring to the court might be really good for us as a nation. So I I am hopeful about that. Well, Heidi and Father Dan, it's always great to sit down and talk to you both. I know that you have been traveling and you're continuing to travel over the next few weeks. So best wishes for safe journeys. Listeners, please know that we do keep you in our prayers and we ask for your prayers for us and for the show. Thank you so much for being with us today. And we will be back in a couple of weeks with The Francis Effect. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. This show is made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at francisfxpod, and our website is also francisfxpod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Heidi and Father Daniel and I will be back in about two weeks. We're looking forward to being with you then. Thank you again for listening.